Let me take uh, this opportunity uh, to note the fact that uh, Vera Lex, the Journal of uh, the International Natural Law Society, uh, has published or will soon publish a special issue on the works of Professor Finnis. And uh, for those of you who might be interested in uh, looking at that, uh, Peter Wodolski, who's here uh, with us from Loyola Law School, who's a member of the uh, editorial board of Vera Lex, has provided for us some uh, publicity sheets for the issue, which includes an order form. So uh, if anyone uh, might be interested in looking at that issue, there are contributions by Joseph Boyle and Michael Bauer, who are, of course, here with, uh, with us for this conference, Christian Berger, who's also uh, here, Patrick Lee, who's also here, and some other, uh, <clears throat> some other philosophers, uh, theologians, and uh, political theorists. This, is, uh, this sheet uh, with the order form is on the table, and you're welcome to pick one up. Well, I'm delighted to be able to uh, welcome to Princeton for this conference Matthew uh, Kramer from Cambridge University. Uh, Dr. Kramer is a scholar whose works I have read with uh, interest and with profit uh, over uh, recent years, and I've been looking forward to meeting him and to having him here with us. He is a graduate of Harvard Law School and holds a PhD and an LLD from uh, Cambridge. Uh, he's fellow and director of uh, studies in law at Churchill College, Cambridge, and director of the Cambridge Forum for Legal and Political Philosophy. His books include In Defense of Legal Positivism, Law Without Trimmings is the subtitle of that book, The Quality of Freedom, uh, and most recently, Where Law and Morality Meet, which was published uh, by Oxford University Press, as were his two earlier books uh, just last year. He's currently at work on two uh, projects, one on objectivity and the rule of law, and the other in, uh, on objectivity in morals. After uh, Dr. Kramer's presentation, we'll have responses by Roberto Moreno, uh, who has taught law at the Catholic University of Asuncion, uh, which is in Buenos Aires. Uh, he holds degrees from the Catholic, Union, uh, the Catholic University of Asuncion and the National University of Asuncion, uh, and also a degree from Oxford University. He's the co-author of books on Paraguayan law and is working on a translation of some of Professor Finnis's essays into uh, Spanish. And following uh, Professor Dr. Marino's uh, presentation uh, response, we'll hear another response from uh, Professor Christopher Tollefson, who is coming back to us, uh, having spent last year as visiting fellow in the James Madison program, uh, and then uh, returned to the University of South Carolina, where he's an assistant professor of, uh, specializing in moral philosophy. He earned his PhD in moral philosophy from Emory University. So please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Matthew Kramer. Jerry Bradley asked me yesterday whether I would be pacing back and forth today because he he's familiar with my lecturing style. And I do prefer to walk back and forth. I feel that attending a lecture by me should be a bit like watching a tennis match. Um, but I've, I've been told that I need to hold the microphone in order to ensure that this will be recorded for archival purposes. So I'm not going to sing. I'm simply um, I'm lecturing. Um, I want to begin, as a number of other speakers have, by thanking Robert George and Brad Wilson, Judy Rivkin, and the others in the James Madison program, including certainly the students who have been very helpful. Um, and I'm delighted that a conference of this sort has been arranged in, in honor of John Finnis. <clears throat> I want to begin by reading, uh, 
reading the first page. I'm going to be reading some portions and simply talking through other portions. In general, I prefer to talk through a paper rather than read it. But because I have to abridge this paper so severely, there will be some portions which I'll simply read um, and a number of portions which I'll omit altogether. Okay, so the first page reads as follows. John Finnis, in the fifth chapter of his Magisterial Natural Law and Natural Rights, recounts the basic requirements of practical reasonableness. During the course of that chapter, he sounds two themes that are of central importance for the present article. In the first place, he evinces some general wariness of the distinction between meta-ethical inquiries and substantive ethical inquiries. As he writes, there is no good reason to separate ethics from meta-ethics. The classical conjunction of the two as ethics or moral philosophy was fully justified. Building on Finnis's wariness, this article will suggest that meta-ethical matters are nothing more and nothing less than highly abstract matters of substantive ethics. And this distinction between matters of high abstraction and matters of much greater concreteness is important, important throughout the paper. Second, among the basic requirements of practical reasonableness expounded by Finnis is a prohibition on any arbitrary preferences among persons. He himself states that his principle of impartiality among persons is tantamount or virtually tantamount to the thesis that every well-formed moral judgment is universalizing. On the one hand, as will soon become evident, this claim by Finnis about the equivalence or virtual equivalence of impartiality and universalizability is somewhat misleading in two respects. His characterization of the thesis of universalizability is excessively narrow, for that thesis pertains to all particulars rather than only to persons. And conversely, the characterization of the thesis of universalizability is excessively broad, for that thesis permits egoism and other forms of partiality so long as they are universalized. On the other hand, despite the non-equivalence of the principle of impartiality among persons and the thesis of universalizability, the two are obviously related. Finnis is quite correct in sensing that each of them rests on a concern about the evils of arbitrariness. Such a concern, rather than any, <coughs> excuse me, rather than any formal considerations of logic or semantics, is what truly justifies the aforementioned principle and thesis. Finnis, with his focus on practical reasonableness, leads us toward a proper grasp of that underlying justification. So I see the arguments that I'm putting forward in this paper as very much in keeping with John Finnis's approach. And so unlike some of the other papers, I'm not undertaking a critique of John at all. Um, okay, now, I assume everyone has a handout. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, as I've indicated, I'm going to talk through some portions of the paper and read other portions. And I recognize that people will have differing levels of familiarity with the issues that, that I'm discussing. Um, some people, like Gideon Rosen, will view supervenience as an old friend with which he's been familiar throughout his work, and then other people are nonplussed by the very term and, and um, wonder what this could be. So quite a bit of what I'll say today will be stage setting, because I'd rather have everyone aboard um, than go through all the arguments in the paper. I'd rather give you a general sense of what the issues are instead of trying to recount the arguments exhaustively. Okay, so 
the two formulations of the relationship or phenomenon of supervenience are Simon Blackburn's. I've modified them slightly in ways that are important for my paper. But the general formulations are from an essay published about three decades ago by Simon Blackburn. And the formulations are supposed to be complementary, though in fact I view the second one as um, a, a gen general thesis within which the first is subsumable. So I'm going to read only the second one. And as I've said, I recognize that people will have differing levels of familiarity with these issues. So I'm going to elucidate the second thesis a bit. Those of you who have long been familiar with uh, metaethical issues, I'm, I hope that I won't bore you. But I feel, as I've said, it's better to have everyone aboard. Okay, so S2, Blackburn's thesis, S2. A property M is supervenient upon properties N1 through NN if M is not identical with any of N1 through NN or with any truth function of them. And it is impossible that two things should each possess the same properties from the set N1 through NN to the same degree without both failing to possess N or both possessing M to the same degree. Okay, now as I've said, I will elucidate this a bit. First of all, although M and N are adjacent letters in the alphabet and therefore happen to be handy as variables for that reason alone, they, they also do designate specific things. That is, M here stands for moral properties. So we're talking about moral properties such as rightness and wrongness and evil and permissibility and commendableness and so forth. The whole range of moral or ethical properties for purposes of this paper, incidentally, I don't distinguish between the terms ethical and moral. I don't, in fact, use those terms interchangeably. Um, I view the term ethical as broader. But, um, but for purposes of this paper, I won't, uh, certainly in my presentation today, I won't try to distinguish between them. Um, so M designates moral properties. N stands for natural properties, that is, properties that are ascertainable through the techniques of the natural sciences, including um, psychology. So we're not only talking about empirical matters in the normal sense, but also subjective states that can be ascertained through introspection. Um, and the N1 through NN designate the full set of relevant natural properties that would underlie or account for the ascribability to a particular situation of some moral property or set of moral properties. That, that's the notion. Okay, now the points about non-identity here aren't really essential. Um, that is, if, uh, if one adopts a theory as some ethical naturalist, many of whom teach at Cornell, though Terry Irwin isn't one of them, but um, um, if one is an ethical naturalist and adopts the view that certain natural properties are equivalent to moral properties, um, then supervenience falls out trivially from that claim. So really these points about identity aren't essential here, but I'll very briefly say just in order to, um, in order to shed a bit of light, when uh, Blackburn talks about a truth function of these properties. What he means is some disjunction of them. So we might have uh, one natural property such as inducing severe pain and another natural property such as 
constituting insincerity and so forth. And um, there might be some disjunction of these that uh, a naturalist of some sort would claim to be equivalent to some moral property. That, that's all he means by that. But really, we can certainly for today's purposes just ignore the bit in the formulation about non-identity. It's not, it, it's not important for anything that I'll be saying. Okay, so the general claim is then in the formulation that if um, two things or if one thing at different points in time are compared and we want to um, ascertain some moral property because moral properties here are the supervenient properties, that is the properties that are supervening on something else, the natural properties, then it is impossible that any two things or one thing at different times should each possess the same properties from the set N1, the same natural properties to the same degree, um, without both failing to possess M or both possessing M to the same degree. Um, that's the general relationship of uh, supervenience as applied to the ethical domain. I should mention very briefly that supervenience has been studied rigorously in other domains as well. Um, the mind-body relationship, for example, or the relationship between the macroscopic and microscopic properties of natural substances and the like. But I'm not focusing on those domains at all today. Um, I'm focusing strictly on claims about supervenience within the domain of ethics or morality. Right. Now, most of the paper is devoted to considering accounts of supervenience by three principal moral philosophers. Um, Richard Hare, who um, certainly, in my view, did most in the 20th century to bring this topic to prominence initially, um, Simon Blackburn, whose contributions have been invaluable, I think, in, um, in lending rigor to the discussions of supervenience. And then Russ Schaefer-Landau, who's um, much more recently contributed in important ways to these debates. And I'm going to have to skip over various portions of my discussions of them, but I'll try to include some strands of each if I can. Okay, what time do I begin? You're, you're, you're about uh, 12 minutes in. Okay, right, fine. Um, right. The first philosopher then on whom I want to focus is Richard Hare, um, RM here. Um, and his thesis of universalizability, um, as many of you will know, Hare maintained that there are two principal logical features of uh, moral requirements, moral judgments, um, prescriptivity and universalizability, and I'm focusing on the latter. Now, universalizability isn't quite equivalent to supervenience. That is, it's somewhat broader in ways that I'm going to indicate, um, but it encompasses supervenience. So universalizability um, in Hare's sense is, as is indicated on the handout, that is the disallowance of individual constants in the articulation of moral principles. Now that needs a bit of elucidation, I realize. So um, what is an individual constant? Well, it's some reference to a particular rather than to 
a universal property of a particular. So it would be a reference to some uh, spatial coordinate or set of spatial coordinates or uh, some reference to temporal locations or uh, some reference to a particular person or a uh, designated thing. Something of that sort, rather than some feature or property or quality of the person or thing or place. Okay. And so what Hare is maintaining is that within any moral principle, there cannot be um, any such reference. That is, the, all the references must be to universal properties of things rather than to rigidly designated things. And this includes supervenience, but is broader than it. So let me briefly explain that point. Um, it includes supervenience because the claim is that there cannot be any references to particulars in moral principles, and therefore there cannot be any reference in the subject of a moral principle, and likewise there cannot be any reference in the object or predicate of a moral principle. By that I mean the, the easiest way to explain this is to offer a couple of examples. Um, suppose we have the moral principle that everyone should pursue the interests of France ahead of the interests of all other nations or individuals. Um, well, there the, the subject of the sentence the sub that expresses the moral principle, everyone, is universally quantified. That is, it doesn't refer to anyone in particular. It, it, <coughs> me, it refers to everyone. Um, and therefore, uh, under uh, Hare's conception of these matters, the constraint of supervenience is satisfied because um, each situation is being treated alike. That is, it, we're not distinguishing among individuals at all. Everyone is required to pursue this project. Um, but there's another respect in which it fails as a well-formed moral principle according to Hare, and that is that there is a reference to a particular in the predicate of the sentence, the subject of the sentence, that is serving the interests of France. France is the particular. France is a particular nation. Um, and therefore, this is not genuinely a moral principle according to Hare. Now, the other respect in which universalizability can fail, it can fail in the respect I've just indicated, where the object or predicate of the sentence is not universalized. But likewise, it can fail when the subject of the sentence is not universalized. So, um, so we could have a principle of this sort. Um, I am under an obligation to abide by certain moral standards, but other people who are qualitatively indistinguishable from me or not. Well, one of the, there, there are actually two individual constants in that, but one, one of the ways in which that fails is the reference to the first person in the subject of the sentence. That's the particular, it's the speaker of the sentence, the utterer of the sentence. And therefore, according to Hare, the moral principle expressed by that sentence can't be genuinely a moral principle. And it violates the constraint of supervenience. That is, it treats my situation differently from the situations of other people whose uh, qualitative standing is indistinguishable from mine. 
And by qualitative standing, I simply mean the features that are relevant morally, um, which would include the historical background and, and everything else. If all of those are genuinely indistinguishable from me, then it ought to be the case, according to here, that any moral principle will treat me on a par with them. So the reference to me in the subject of the sentence, therefore, deprives any such moral principle of its status as a genuine moral principle. Okay, okay so that's the way in which Hare's thesis of universalizability connects with this phenomenon of supervenience. Now, Hare himself took the thesis of universalizability to be a logical semantic thesis. I should indicate straight away that I am not disputing at all the fundamental constraint or requirement of universalizability or the fundamental constraint or requirement of supervenience. I accept each of those requirements. So in that sense, I'm on Hare's side in opposition to moral particularists or others. Um, and I, I'm very much on his side in that respect. Where I differ from him is in his characterization of the status of that requirement. He views it as a matter of logic and semantics, whereas I view it as a fundamental, substantive, moral, ethical requirement. And that's what I'm contesting. I'm not contesting at all that um, universalizability is a basic requirement within ethics and within morality. That's not an issue. Okay, so the, the focus of the paper then is directed to contesting Hare's claim that what he has unearthed here, what, what he has singled out here is a logical semantic thesis. And to some degree the paper relies at various junctures on certain counterexamples to this, some of which are my own, some of which are taken from John Mackey some of which are in the liter literature more generally. Um, and I'm only going to mention three of them briefly here. Uh, but in each case, the point is to try to suggest that although the moral claim being made here, the moral principle being enunciated here, is mistaken, so th again, that's not at issue. It's not... It, it isn't in dispute here whether these moral principles are correct or not. We, I agree with Hare that they're not. What I disagree with him on is whether the error is a logical error, a semantic error, or whether it's a uh, substantive moral error. And that's what we're disagreeing about. So these counterexamples then are meant to cast doubt on the notion that as a sheer matter of logic or semantics, moral principles are disallowed um, if they contain any references to individual particulars. Okay, so one of these counterexamples is the Francophile, that is the, the person who would adhere to the principle I mentioned a little while ago, um, the notion that everyone should pursue the interests of France ahead of all competing interests. And what Hare wants to maintain is that that is a logically incoherent principle. Whereas it seems clear to me, that although it's 
unquestionably a mistaken moral principle, that it's a coherent moral principle. It's wrong. It's, it's unquestionably wrong. But there's nothing incoherent about it. And that, so that serves as one counterexample. Obviously, francophilia is only, yeah, I, cho- I chose francophilia because there are so many French people who would probably adhere to that principle. But, um, <laughs> but you're welcome to substitute any other particular nation. Um, the second, uh, the, the second example, and this is from Mackey, is some, the notion that everyone should seek to act in ways that are pleasing to God. Now, in order to make the point, this has to be taken not as a shorthand for certain pattern forms of behavior that would themselves that would themselves um, amount to universals. That is, uh, we don't want such a principle to be understood as requiring that you act in this way or that way and so forth. Rather, it's just in ways that are pleasing to God, whatever God may demand. And so the reason I talk about the Abrahamic attitude toward God is this is the notion that when Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis was prepared to sacrifice Isaac for no discernible reason apart from the fact that he was commanded to do it um, by God, uh, then... That is the sort of behavior that complies with the principle as I'm articulating it here. And that sort of principle, it seems to me, once again, is clearly mistaken. That is, I have no doubt that, uh, again, as a non-believer, as an atheist, I have no doubt that the principle is mistaken. But I certainly don't regard it as incoherent in any sense. Um, and it seems to me that a moral theory or an account of universalizability that leads to the conclusion that this is an incoherent principle rather than just a substantively mistaken principle um, is, is incorrect. A third example, and this is also from Mackey, though I develop it a bit in ways beyond what he did, um, is the ascetic who... Uh, abides by the principle which I mentioned a little while ago, and that is the notion that he or she is obligated to abide by especially exacting standards of conduct, even though other people, perhaps the ascetic's twin brother or twin sister, is not um, similarly obligated. And again, that seems to me clearly a mistaken principle. That is, um, it seems to me to involve a morally unjustified distinction, a morally arbitrary distinction. But I don't accept that arbitrariness amounts to logical incoherence. I think it just amounts to moral error, ethical error. And so these are, uh, I obviously develop these counterexamples at greater length in the paper, but for our present purposes, these are the counterexamples that are operative throughout the paper at various junctures. Um, and there are others in the literature, as I've said. Um, but for our purposes, I'll stay with these. Okay, the first portion of the paper, apart from the opening page, which I want to read, is a portion which, after contesting Hare's view that the 
uh, thesis of universalizability is a logical semantic thesis, which is um, warranted by reference to the prevailing conventions for the use of moral terms. Uh, that is, the norms of, according to which we use moral terms such as ought or should or obligated and so forth. Um, for a moment, I accept, let's accept arguendo that Hare's correct about the prevailing conventions. I think, in fact, that he's wrong. I think the conventions are much more flexible, much, much more expansive than he allows. And I also indicate, in contrast with him, that this is, in any event, clearly an empirical question. And to some degree, Brian Bix mentioned yesterday Brian Leiter's naturalistic objections to conceptual analysis. Well, it, to some degree, Hare certainly embodies that tradition of conceptual analysis, which at times makes clearly empirical claims about prevailing patterns of usage, for example, without undertaking the slightest effort to substantiate those claims empirically. So I don't want to make too much of that, and therefore I will accept arguendo that Hare's correct about the prevailing conventions. But then I think one can make a largely Dworkinian argument. I don't mention Dworkin here at all, but I have to confess that I think it is Dworkinian in spirit. So this will be the first portion that I read. Given that the insistence by Hare on the absence of individual constants and moral principles is woodenly unconvincing when construed as a thesis about the logical semantic properties of moral words, we need to explore his arguments in support of that insistence. We shall have to see whether he came up with any more solid grounds for his position. Before doing so, however, we should pause to recognize that his position would be infirm even if the prevailing patterns of usage in moral discourse were as he envisaged. In other words, even if we were to suppose arguendo that the meanings of basic moral terms in ordinary discourse do disallow individual constants within moral principles, we would still have to reject Hare's contention that any inclusion of such a constant in the articulation of a moral principle will perforce be an error of language. His contention effaces the distinction between linguistic mistakes and linguistic extensions. Incidentally, extension is perhaps not an entirely felicitous word. It might better be elaborations or even revelations for reasons that will become clear. Let me read that again. His contention effaces the distinction between linguistic mistakes and linguistic extensions. Sometimes when words are used in ways that go beyond their familiar meanings, the uses are indeed erroneous, at least initially. On other occasions, contrarywise, an unorthodox, an unorthodox use constitutes an extension or elaboration of some established meanings rather than a misunderstanding or defiance of them. That is, it renders explicit various aspects or elements of those meanings that have theretofore been only implicit, and it consequently reveals to people certain implications of their linguistic conventions which they have not hitherto consciously noted. If we wish to ascertain whether any particular instance of atypical usage is an error or a revelatory extension, we obviously cannot advert simply to the fact that it is atypical. We additionally have to inquire into the purpose or purposes for which people standardly employ the terms in question. An unusual use of a word that tallies with the purposes behind the standard employment of the word 
will normally be classifiable as an extension or elaboration, whereas an unusual use that runs athwart the aforementioned purposes will normally be classifiable as a blunder, at least initially. Now, as will be argued later in this article, any specification of the purposes of morality or the purposes of the basic vocabulary of morality is itself a substantive moral thesis. Hence, even if the regnant semantics of moral discourse were fully supportive of Hare's insistence on universalizability, we would have to resort to moral reflection in order to determine whether any universalizability contravening pronouncement is linguistically mistaken or linguistically revelatory. In other words, whether it departs from the prevailing patterns of usage or uh, elucidates and illuminates them more fully. We cannot draw the distinction between missteps and revelations without recourse to the point or purpose of morality, and we cannot locate that point or purpose without the exercise of moral judgment. That latter claim is something that I argue for later in the paper. Okay, I'm simply going to mention the five arguments which I list here. There are actually more than five arguments in Hare's work, but there are five main arguments which I consider, um, which he offers in advance of his, uh, which he advances in support of his thesis of universalizability, um, and specifically in support of the notion that the thesis of universalizability is a logical semantic thesis rather than a substantive moral thesis. Um, I think I'm going to, much as I'd like to discuss this portion, I think I'd better skip over this portion, except to point out number five contains, a, I must have been asleep when I typed number five, because it contains a couple of uh, bad typographical errors. One is that the final word should be intuitions rather than intuitions, and um, the other is that the penultimate word should be moral rather than logical. The whole point is that it's a distinction between linguistic intuitions, which are the basis for logic, according to Hare, and moral intuitions. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to have time to say more than that about those arguments. Um, so let me skip down to capital B, supervenience. And there uh, I'll read some further portions of the paper after talking through a bit of it. So supervenience. Supervenience is, as I've already indicated, that is, you can take it to be that the subject of the sentence that expresses a moral principle must be universally quantified. That is, it must be something like everyone or any person or something of that sort. It can't be a reference to a particular agent or any other particular. Okay, so... Um, Within Hare's schema, that would be equivalent to the claim that by logical necessity, as a matter of logical necessity, anything that partakes of some moral property, such as rightness or wrongness or permissibility, does so in virtue of being subsumable under a universal principle. That is, if, if we arrive at a verdict concerning some particular person or some other particular that a moral property is ascribable to that particular person, then, according to Hare, it follows as a matter of logic that there is a universalized, universal principle covering that, particular, that specific instance among others. Okay. Um, Hare's first argument in support of supervenience. This is closely similar to the... Uh, argument which I've numbered six in the previous section, that is, um, 
here on universalizability, the fourth argument, which is number six. Um, but uh, so I'm not going to say everything about it that I would, because some of what I would say is back there. But I'm going to leave that for now and focus just what, on what I say here. Well, Hare's argument, broadly speaking, and here he is clearly making an empirical claim, which he makes no effort whatsoever to substantiate. I have to say, in fairness, in my rejoinder, I also make no effort to engage in any empirical inquiries, but at least I acknowledge as much, um, and which is perhaps a feeble excuse for not engaging in such inquiries, but at least I recognize that there is ultimately an empirical matter at issue here. Um, and his claim is that if someone like the ascetic, and I'll use the ascetic as the example. There are other examples. Hare's favorite examples are existentialists and so forth. But I'll use the ascetic who claims that he or she is subject to peculiarly exacting moral requirements that are not similarly applicable to other people whose, quality, whose qualitative standing is indistinguishable. Um, Hare maintains that if anyone were to take such a position, um, then that person's utterances would be met with logical incomprehension. That is, by that he means simply the sort of incomprehension that arises when someone utters uh, logically contradictory theses. Um, and so he's making an empirical claim here, but, but the general point is is that the constraint which the ascetic is violating, the constraint which the ascetic is running up against, is a logical constraint rather than simply a substantive moral constraint. So here I'm going to read another portion of the paper. Again, I don't really like reading. I prefer to talk through papers because I think it's e somewhat easier to listen to. But um, it also takes longer, so I will um, here resort to reading. I'm responding to some quotations from here, which I won't read. They lay out the argument, which I've just sketched. Um, and I'm saying that in each case, that is the case earlier that he discussed, where he maintained that logical bafflement would arise. And now here I say, in each case, the likeliest reaction to a violation is that of dismay over the peculiarity of the moral standard to which somebody is adhering, the ascetic, for example. Though indignant dismay might also occasionally be felt in reaction to a flagrantly self-contradictory pronouncement, consider, for example, the likely responses to the statement that the Nazis' extermination of European Jews was thoroughly wrong, and it is not the case that the Nazis' extermination of European Jews was thoroughly wrong, the moral outrage in such a context would be directed against a failure to take an intelligible stand on a vital moral issue. Such outrage would reflect the fact that the sheer intellectual paralysis engendered by errant illogic is morally unacceptable in application to matters of great moral importance, such as the extermination of European Jews. An indignant response to a violation of the constraint of supervenience will be quite different. That is an indignant response to the ascetic's claim about his own position of moral obligation. An indignant response in that context will be directed not against the failure to adopt a minimally coherent position, but against the adoption of a coherently invidious and arbitrary position. Such a reaction will occur precisely because the offending standard or verdict is not self-contradictory and opaquely incomprehensible. 
the supervenience infracting standard of verdict will undergo condemnation for being idiosyncratic and utterly excuse me, and unacceptably discriminatory or capricious, rather than for effectively asserting nothing by affirming both something and its negation. Of course, and here I add in parentheses just to show you. Of course, as has already been acknowledged, the reactions of people to manifestations of unusual ethical standards are ultimately an empirical matter. Nonetheless, in the absence of any relevant empirical findings, and I haven't advanced the cause any more than here did, uh, plausible hypotheses about those reactions are serviceable, especially when they highlight conceptual distinctions that are blurred by Hare's contrary empirical hypotheses. Uh, end of parenthesis. Admittedly, someone whose moral judgments transgress the constraint of supervenience will typically and rightly be accused of inconsistency. However, the likelihood and correctness of such an accusation should not lead anyone to subscribe to Hare's characterization of the aforementioned constraint as logical rather than moral. One species of inconsistency is, of course, a logical property, but there are other species as well. Supervenience contravening inconsistency among one's moral judgments is a moral failing rather than a logical error. I'm not at all contesting, incidentally, that the constraint of logical consistency is applicable to moral discourse. I fully accept that it is. I'm simply contesting whether it's that constraint that's being violated by supervenience contravening pronouncements such as that of the ascetic. Okay, so let me read that sentence once more. Um, Supervenience contravening inconsistency among one's moral judgments is a moral failing rather than a logical error. Normally, a charge of inconsistency among those judgments is an allegation of fickleness or capriciousness or hypocrisy or inequity rather than a claim about a veritable logical mistake. Ethical inconsistency resides in a failure to treat like cases alike or to take account of ethically relevant differences while ethical consistency resides in sustaining a pattern of uniformity among one's judgments for like cases and a pattern of appropriate differentiation for dissimilar cases. People can be ethically inconsistent without being logically inconsistent. The former, indeed, very seldom involves the latter. Conversely, the logical consistency of one's judgments does not by any means ensure their ethical consistency. For the attainment of ethical consistency among judgments, it is hardly sufficient that the judgments can logically all be true. They must additionally bespeak a commonness of approach that displays basic fairness in one's handling of situations, fairness achieved through sensitivity to the ethically significant similarities and dissimilarities among the situations. As the summation of this fundamental requirement of fairness and consistency, the constraint of supervenience is central among the standards of substantive ethics. So again, I'm not at all disputing that it is. I'm simply disputing whether it's a logical constraint or substantive moral constraint. And incidentally, in reference to one thing uh, mentioned by John yesterday, his uh, objections to Hume, I fully share his objections to Hume. That is, the fact that it's a substantive moral constraint is also, in my, also in my view, entails that it's a constraint of reason. I don't think that it's a constraint of logic, but I, I certainly think that it's a constraint of reason. Two caveats should be attached to the argument in the last paragraph. First, nothing therein should be construed as a denial that ethical judgments are truth at, that is, that we can ascribe values of truth or false to ethical propositions, and that they are subject to the constraint of logical consistency. 
Although my discussion has emphasized the difference between logical consistency and ethical consistency, and although I have contended that supervenience in the ethical realm pertains to the latter rather than to the former, the applicability of logical constraints such as consistency has certainly not been gainsaid. On the contrary, my discussion has taken that applicability as given. The question explored here has been whether the requirement of supervenience in the domain of morality is tantamount to the logical requirement of consistency. In presenting a negative answer to that question, and in arguing that the former requirement is fundamentally ethical rather than logical, the preceding paragraph has decidedly not disputed that moral discourse is subject to both of those requirements, the logical constraint as well as the ethical constraint. Indeed, the ethical constraint couldn't be satisfied if the logical constraint were. Second, sometimes an accusation of inconsistency among one's ethical judgments does amount to an accusation of logical inconsistency. When a charge of this sort is voiced, it will be broadly along the following lines. Those judgments cannot both be correct, or those judgments cannot all be correct. What is presupposed by such an assertion is that the judgments in question are governed by some overarching ethical principle, which as a matter of logic cannot be squared with violations of the constraint of supervenience. When people adhere to that presupposition about the reign of some ethical principle, as they should and usually do, their censure of transgressions of supervenience can indeed emerge as criticisms of logical inconsistency, though as has been submitted, the emergence of the censure in that form is less likely than its emergence as criticisms of ethical inconsistency. However, this point is damaging to my argument only if the content of the presupposition, the presupposition being here that there is some universal principle which governs the attribution of this moral property to a particular. This point is damaging to my argument only if that presupposition is itself a logical or analytic truth rather than an ethical truth. Is the subsumption of ethical judgments under universal principles a matter of logical necessity? Or is it only a matter of ethical necessity? Well, I go on to say that, that I've presented reasons for already for thinking that it's a matter of substantive ethical necessity rather than of logical necessity. Um, and because if that weren't true, then when the ascetic, for example, maintains that he or she is morally obligated to do something, even though other people similarly situated or not, that that would be an incoherent claim rather than merely misguided and invidious. Um, that, that is, anyone advancing such an assertion would be articulating a view that is unintelligibly, unintelligibly self-contradictory rather than just morally offensive. Um, and I think that that's a distortive account of the matter here. I go on to say more, but I'm, I really have to move on, so I'm going to skip over more of this discussion between logical inconsistency and ethical inconsistency. Um, and I want to move to Hare's next main argument, um, which is similar to one of Simon Blackburn's principal arguments. And so if I don't get a chance to discuss Simon, um, certainly in any detail, then it, at least you'll have a sense of what, one of my principal lines of response. And that is, Hare's next main argument is an appeal to the purpose of morality, the fundamental point of purpose of morality, what morality is all about. And as many of you will know, Hare, Hare was a utilitarian, and so he took a utilitarian view of the point or purpose of morality with an emphasis specifically on instruction and guidance. That is, 
instructing people on appropriate ways of acting and guiding them toward appropriate ways of acting. And those appropriate ways would be cashed out in utilitarian terms. Um, and this is an, uh, an appeal he makes at several junctures in his work when discussing supervenience. That is, we want to know why is there this constraint, uh, this constraint which he regards as a logical constraint um, of supervenience? Well, it's because the basic purpose of morality couldn't be realized in the absence of this constraint. That, that's the form of argument here. And it's a form of argument which Simon Blackburn offers as well and I, I'd like to read you my responses to both of them, but I fear I'll have to content myself with reading my response to Hare. So I'll just read a couple of sentences from the quotations. I offer quite abundant quotations here from Hare, but just a couple of, re, of uh, brief sentences. The reason then, this is Hare, the reason then for the supervenient character of the words right and ought in other basic moral terms is that they are used primarily for giving advice or instruction or in general for guiding choices. And then Hare reiterated slightly later that the reason for an evaluative term supervenience is that it is used in order to teach or affirm or otherwise draw attention to a standard for choosing between objects of a certain class. Okay. So this appeal to the purpose of morality is now what I'm addressing as I say, Simon Blackburn invokes a similar line of argument, Rush Schaefer Landau to a certain degree as well. As partial explanations of the phenomenon of supervenience in the domain of ethics, these quoted remarks are unexceptionable and illuminating. However, they go no way toward establishing that the relationship of supervenience in that domain is logical rather than ethical. On the contrary, they militate against such a notion after all, the ascription of a purpose to ethics or ethical discourse, which we shall come upon as well in the writings of Blackburn and Schaefer-Landau, is itself a substantive ethical thesis, albeit at a very high level of abstraction. Any such ascription singles out some aspect or aspects of ethical categorization as centrally important for the lives of human beings or of rational beings generally. And so for a utilitarian, it would be utilitarian concerns. According to the view propounded by Hare, the, pivotal, the pivotally valuable function of morality lies in interaction among human beings, specifically in modes of interaction such as instruction and guidance and advice. Because violations of the constraint of supervenience would impair the fulfillment of that function and would indeed undermine it altogether if they were numerous, a prohibition on those violations is basic to the whole enterprise of moral classification and judgment. And again, I'm not contesting that at all. Hare's justification for the sway of supervenience in the ethical realm is quite plausible, but only as an ethical doctrine rather than as a logical semantic doctrine. His emphasis on the key connection between ethics and human interaction was echoed by Mackey, though from a slightly different angle. Instead of concentrating on the facilitation of beneficial interaction, as Hare does, Mackey highlighted the need for restrictions on detrimental interaction. He declared that the function of morality is to counter the bad effects of limited sympathies among human beings. And he maintained that the Harian constraint of universalizability is largely supportable by reference to that function. He did not harbor any illusions that he was supplying grounds for regarding the requirement of universalizability as a matter of logic or semantics, 
Rather, he rejected any, and this is now Mackey, any ascription of universalizability to moral terms as a logical feature, end of quote, and he submitted that the property of universalizability is easily understood when we look beyond the proposed logical thesis to a practical one, end of quote. As was stated near the outset of this article, the domain of substantive ethics encompasses exceedingly abstract ethical propositions, as well as more textured principles and particular verdicts. An imputation of a general point or purpose to ethics is among the most abstract of the aforementioned propositions, as was likewise indicated near the beginning of this article. Such an imputation is therefore neutral among the vast welter of concrete ethical positions, for it delineates a function that can be furthered by any such positions that are credible. All the same, it is a substantive ethical thesis, however abstract it may be. It attaches fundamental ethical value to a function which transmits that value to the ethical norms and decisions by which the function is promoted. A focus on the intercourse among human beings with an orientation toward advancing their positive interaction or limiting their negative interaction is one attractive route for arriving at the cardinal value or purpose of ethics. Writers within the broad utilitarian tradition in ethics, such as Hare and Mackey, generally favor such a route, but so do many others. Some writers within the Kantian tradition favor instead a concentration on the integrity of the individual rational agent as the primary concern of morality. Given that the deliberations and judgments of such an agent cannot partake of integrity unless the requirement of supervenience is heeded, a Kantian justification for that requirement is readily available. In any case, whatever may be the precise focus for an attribution of some overriding purpose to ethical classifications, the chief point here is that any such attribution is within the domain of ethics rather than outside it. Highly abstract though such an attribution is, it assigns substantive value and importance to something. It is not a thesis about the meanings of words or about purely logical relations. Any arguments or considerations pertinently adduced in support of it would themselves be ethical rather than lexicographical or formal. Someone who has recourse to an attribution of this sort in order to explain the constraint of supervenience in ethics will pro tanto have revealed that that constraint is squarely ethical. Now, I say more about this to justify the claims I've just made in my remarks on Simon Blackburn, but I, I'm obviously not going to have time to get to those. So let me conclude by just sketching how I proceed in the rest of the paper. Um, after considering one or two other arguments by Hare, I'd like to go on to consider Simon Blackburn. Um, and uh, Blackburn, as I've indicated, has um, given great rigor, I think, to the debates over supervenience. Um, and he disagrees with Hare about the general thesis of universalizability, that it's a logical semantic thesis rather than a substantive ethical thesis. But he, he uh, is aligned with Hare in maintaining that supervenience is a logical constraint. Incidentally, I don't distinguish here between logical and conceptual and analytic, um, be, mainly because these writers don't when they're writing about supervenience. Um, so he is aligned with Hare on that point, and therefore I take issue with some of his arguments to that effect, including centrally another appeal to the purpose of morality, to the purpose of ethics. And I'm happy to accept that that's a very good ground, a very good justification for the requirement of supervenience. I just maintain that it's not a logical conceptual basis. Um, and then finally, I move on to Russ Schaefer-Landau, um, whose 
uh, who a couple of years ago published a very impressive book on moral realism. Um, and he offers there an account of uh, the phenomenon of supervenience, which he also regards as a logical or conceptual matter. And after taking issue with some of his arguments, um, I, I then offer some, in quite a sketchy form, admittedly, because it's not my primary purpose, but I then offer some ethical arguments in support of supervenience. And whether or not one accepts the ethical arguments I've offered, which are offered in very much an inchoate form, they're not fully developed, um, the chief point uh, which I'm seeking to substantiate in the article is that those are the sorts of arguments one needs to make in support of this requirement of supervenience. It's not a logical constraint or conceptual constraint. It's a, con it's a highly abstract constraint, admittedly, but it's a constraint of substantive ethics, which to the extent that it's supportable, as I think it clearly is, has to be supported on substantive grounds. Thank you. I should perhaps mention, sorry, just but I have not seen these comments, so I'll be interested in what I have to say. Thank you. Uh, before starting, I have to say uh, a couple of things. Uh, the first one is uh, uh, that for the past 25 years, uh, the book we are celebrating today has received a lot of positive praise and well-deserved uh, positive adjectives. And I'm glad to say that I'm going to add a new one to the list. And at least uh, if, if you take something from my comments, I hope it's this. And uh, it's that uh, natural law, natural rights, to me, seems to have some kind of uh, miraculous uh, quality. Yeah? It's capable of, of creating a miracle. And, and there's no other way for me to explain uh, how a 28-year-old lawyer from Paraguay is, uh, is here amongst uh, such noted scholars and, and in this university. So uh, for me, at least, the, the book uh, is miraculous. Uh, of course, uh, it's miraculous, but in a, in a secular way. That's why I said it's only miraculous in a, in a sense. And in a secular way, because there are uh, people who have made this uh, miracle uh, possible, right? And uh, I want to thank them, because uh, as a Greek poet said, uh, gratitude is uh, the memory of the heart. And I really believe that is true. So I have to thank, uh, first and foremost, uh, Princeton University, the James Madison program, uh, Professor Robert George, Professor Wilson, and Judy Rifkin, and everybody who's here and who's going to have to bear with me for a couple of minutes. Thank you very much. And last but not least, Professor Finnis, uh, thank you very much for your generosity. Now, uh, I have the honor to make a, a couple of comments on Professor or Matthew Kramer's paper, paper, I'm sorry. And my first reaction to his paper was uh, worrying because it was one of complete agreement. And I was really worried because that's not good for, <laughs> for a, comment, a commentator, commentator in, a, in a conference. But then I think that the, the clarity and the forcefulness of uh, the arguments of Professor Kramer made me actually realize that I was not only not agreeing with him, but in complete disagreement with him. <laughs> so that's good news, at least for entertainment purposes. I don't know uh, for philosophical argument. But um, it's, Professor Grammer, it's a totally friend, uh, friendly uh, disagreement. Um, 
I do not believe, for one, that supervenience is an ethical phenomenon. And I believe that if it is, as Professor Kramer contends, it's actually not an ethical phenomenon. Again, it's actually a, a redundant phenomenon, and that we should uh, do without it. I will try to do my best to prove both of these uh, arguments in what follows. But before I want to make a, a brief, a very brief uh, statement uh, regarding uh, what Professor Kramer says is the point of ethics. Uh, although I, I'm, I'm aware that most of, of this is obiter dicta, right? The paper is not about the point of ethics. I think there's a couple of uh, things that I should say and I should notice. Uh, the first is that uh, at several junctures in his paper, although he has not uh, said it here, uh, Professor Kramer said, uh, seems to imply that the point of ethics is, has something to do with cooperation between human beings or, in his own words, to structure uh, or a focus on the intercourse between human beings, either uh, with an orientation toward advancing their positive interaction or limiting their negative interaction. Is somewhere close uh, the point of, uh, takes you close to the point of ethics. I do not agree with this, and um, I think uh, this is a, a very narrow view of ethics, and I still think that uh, Aristotle's point that the point of ethics has something to do with uh, what is or are good or goods for a human being, for real human beings, has, uh, is a more promising way to, to querying about the point of ethics. And uh, at any event, ethics seems to me to, to have something to do with the flourishing of real human beings and the, of the communities that they form in life. But this is not what worries me, and, and I repeat, these are only obiter dictas of, of his paper. What, what is a little bit worrying for me is uh, the way that Kramer uses what I, what I, I would call the uh, Dworkin strategy of everything within morality and nothing outside morality thesis, or to give it a, a name. Because Professor Kramer insists that the point of ethics is an attribution or an imputation that someone has to make and it's a substantive ethical position that someone takes when he says, the point of ethics is this, or maximizing uh, utility, or whatever. Now, insofar as this thesis, everything with immorality and nothing outside morality thesis, was advanced as a way of criticizing or, or confronting certain arguments from queerness, etc., it's a, it's a good argument. But I think that it leaves a couple of things uh, in the background. The first one was noted in Professor Finney's review of Law's Empire, and it's that it gives needless comfort to uh, relativ relativists who are uh, legion, like Professor Finney said, uh, amongst law students. This is because even though it is true that uh, the queerness arguments should be uh, uh, put aside, and it is also true that in a strict sense, Ethical, uh, the, ethic, the ethical aspect of uh, human beings is not derived from their metaphysical aspects. This does not mean that there is no ontology of, of morals or that one should not make a series of presuppositions when one is doing sound ethical inquiry, such as uh, presuppose in various uh, senses the four or, uh, types of order, the reality of free choice, the distinctiveness of the human species, uh, etc. So uh, on the one side, the uh, everything uh, with immorality, nothing outside of it, seems to imply that there's nothing else. So it's only, everything is moral argument. And this, I don't think, is sound for the reasons that I have explained. 
Moreover, there's a, an even more worrying concern for me, and it's that once you accept this, this view, you, you have to accept that... It, I, I think it makes it clear, I'm sorry, that there being no ontology of morals, so to speak, uh, only a determined human being can impute a point to ethics. And this is worrying, because the question then becomes, who is imputing the point? Who is going to attribute this point? Is it uh, a, a professor... Blackburn or Professor Dworkin or me or a man on the street. Uh, I don't think that uh, you can impute a point of ethics like that. I think that uh, uh, if you don't recognize in one sense the reality of, ethical, of the ethical realm, I think you open at the highest level of extraction, uh, but without a doubt, with a trickle-down logic, uh, the door to ethical conventionalism, conventionalism, and this is not sound. This side remarks being made, I should focus on my strong claims that I said in the beginning of my comments, and they are that basically supervenience is not an ethical phenomenon. I know that this may sound a little bit uh, hard, and maybe, as, as, as Schaefer Landau says, if there is no supervenience, then the moral world will be running wild. It's obviously a metaphor, but it's a good metaphor, I think. So. I will try to say that supervenience is not an ethical phenomenon while at the same time trying to keep the moral world a little bit under control. Um, I will have two propositions, two distinct propositions for the remainder of the comments. The first one is uh, to deny that supervenience, as explained and expounded by authors like Hare and, and Blackburn, is actually a, a, a meta-ethical or ethical phenomenon. And the second one is to accept Professor Kramer's uh, premise that it is uh, an, eth an ethical phenomenon, a, uh, a substantive one, and then I will say that it still is not an ethical phenomenon. I will try not to sound as incoherent as I just sounded. Okay. Uh, before starting uh, an analysis of Blackburn's uh, explanation of supervenience, I want to say uh, a couple of things about how the, how the, the concept of supervenience arrived, because as uh, many of you know, and, and and most of you know, supervenience only arrived as a, as a strict philosophical term in the middle of the 20th century. And this made me think a lot. I mean, uh, we should not do genealogy or, or archaeology solely as a, as a, as a philosophical argument. I, I, I'm aware of that. But I think that in this case, it leads us to some illuminating points about, about supervenience, about how it came. Because supervenience arrived in the, in the ethical arena through Richard Hare. And, and granted that, that it, for him it's one of the aspects of universalizability, it's also true that the main, the main part of the book, The Language of Morals, when Hare uses supervenience, he uses it explicitly as an argument against naturalism. So what, he sees supervenience as a very strong argument against naturalism. I won't go into why he does. Now, Blackburn, who, as Professor Kramer says, has given the most vigorous presentation of, of supervenience, has done exactly the same thing, or similar thing. He explicitly introduces supervenience as an argument against moral realism. And, by the way, I should say that uh, I, I have learned that you should be, uh, you should be scared of, of labels such as moral realism or legal positivism, but for the sake of argument, I'm going to use... Uh, that label here, and besides Blackburn also uses it. 
he introduces the term or, or the argument of supervenience against moral realism. Now, you may say that what I'm implying here uh, is, is unsound or that I'm going on a non sequitur, and I agree. I will try to be a conspiracy theorist about this, uh, about how uh, the supervenience got into the ethical discourse. And I will try to show in, in a couple of minutes why I think my conspiracy theory is adequate. I will be considering Blackburn's case uh, against supervenience. Um, Blackburn states quite boldly uh, in this essay on moral realism that moral realism is an instance of a correspondence theory of truth. And he correspondingly labels moral realism as a view that truth of moral utterances is to consist in their correspondence with some fact or state of affairs. Now, this is not a sound uh, moral realist, I think, or, or maybe it's a philosophical scarecrow, I don't know. What I want to point out here is that um, a sound moral theory, such as the one developed in, uh, for example, natural law, natural rights, uh, does not fit uh, Blackmore's characterization, I think. And moreover, with his emphasis on uh, practicality and practical reasoning in moral inquiry, and his refusal to fall prey of uh, empiricist methodology, uh, epistemology, I'm sorry, which is the basis of Blackburn's argument, I should say, a theory such as Professor Finnis can state, then we can ob ob obviate the misunderstanding that every correspondence theory of truth is prey to, that we have some access to the facts or reality to which true judgments and thus true statements and sentences correspond other than the access afforded by our truth-seeking inquiries understanding and judgment. The illusion that underpins most denials of objectivity is this. That to which true judgments have their truth by corresponding, the facts, the world, the reality, somehow lies open to an inspection conducted otherwise than by rationally arriving at true judgments and the type of question. That illusion is the root of all reductive programs that we can call philosophical empiricism. That's a quote from Professor Finney. What seems to me particularly illuminating from this passage, and it's fitting in the, the whole of Professor Finney's philosophy for that sense, is that it, to me, not, it needs not even to start answering to Blackburn's or Hare's challenge on supervenience. This is basically because one does not even have to discuss about two sets of properties, which is the strongest supposition, the presupposition that, uh, that Blackburn does. For as the quote makes it clear, to me at least, there is only one world, and only one set of properties. To see this, we should only consider Blackburn's definition of, of supervenience. He, he insists in that a property M, moral property, is supervenience upon property N1 and N natural properties. I'm not interested in the whole of the definition. I'm just interested in that part, okay? And we can accept the natural properties part of the definition, I think. But by moral properties, Blackburn is actually talking about moral facts. That's what, that's what his, uh, his uh, target is. And that's why he puts the argument in favor of supervenience because when he proves that there is no such thing as moral fact or, or his moral realist correspondence theory of truth, then he can prove his projectivist theory. Or that's how I read it. Uh, the, the whole point is uh, for Blackburn's con conception of supervenience to be true. There has to be something called moral properties, attributes, facts, whatever things, and this seems to be possible only if we sustain the existence of different realms of moral and natural facts, if we sustain the existence of moral things or facts, and if we sustain a, a type of casual, causal, I'm sorry, causal relationship 
between those moral facts and the natural facts. All of this is made clear in a passage uh, that is central in the essay of, of Blackburn. And he says, if A has some naturalistic properties and is also good, where his goodness is a distinct further fact not following from his naturalistic features, and if B has those features as well, then it follows that B is also good. And this is a puzzle for the realist, and he goes on to prove why. First, as I said, there is no puzzle for a, uh, a sound moral realist here. For he had claimed that he doesn't even understand what Blackburn is saying. And the second thing is that Blackburn, to explain the account of supervenience, he needs this kind of dualism, of dual set of properties to exist, or else his argument uh, goes down the drain. And Blackburn has, because as his humane uh, epistemology concedes him, there are moral facts for him, albeit not the moral facts that we are interested in. And let me quote a paragraph from the book. He says, why the anti-realist or Blackburn, he can't explain supervenience. He says, a natural way of explaining the supervenience of moral properties would be something like this. There can be no question that we often choose to admire, commend, desire objects because of their naturalistic properties. Now, it is not possible to hold an attitude to a thing because of it possessing certain properties and at the same time not hold that attitude to another thing that is believed to have the same properties. What I'm trying to say here is that unless one holds it to the views that there are, in an important sense of the word, moral properties or facts or things, then it makes no sense to hold on to the requirement of supervenience. In the case of the imagined moral realist, uh, the imagined by Blackburn, these facts are never explicitly explained what they are. In Blackburn's case, the facts are roughly attitudes, our attitudes, sentiments, whatever, to states of affairs. This uh, way uh, of seeing things for me is, is absolutely unsustainable. And hence, I, for me at least, the, uh, the moral realist, the sound moral realist does not even have to start answering to, to Blackburn's meta-ethical formulation of supervenience. I have another argument against Blackburn, but I'm sure that I'm already out of time. So I'm gonna finish with my second argument uh, against supervenience as an ethical phenomenon. There is a puzzle for me, though, and the puzzle is this, is that Blackburn states specifically in his, in his essay that if supervenience were a moral impossibility, then supervenience would not be an ethical phenomenon in his sense, in, in, in the sense that he's saying. He, see, he says, if it were only a moral impossibility that two things should be identical in naturalistic properties, but different in moral worth, then moral worth would not be supervenient upon naturalistic properties in my sense. Now I agree with this sentence of, of Blackburn's essay and basically it's the only sentence with which I agree. <laughs> but the puzzle for me is why uh, Professor Kramer, who, who sustains, I, I should add, in his paper, a sound moral uh, realist position, why he answers uh, Blackburn's challenge. And the puzzle I think is solved uh, if, we, if we acknowledge that he does not answer because he does not answer him at his level. He answers uh, Blackburn at the ethical level. He says that supervenience is an ethical phenomenon. Now, granted what Professor Kramer says, that supervenience is not a meta-ethical phenomenon, but a substantive ethical position. And granted that everything that I've said for the last five minutes or 10 minutes about supervenience and why it was wrongly conceived by anti-realists, etc. I would still hold on to the thesis that supervenience is not an ethical phenomenon. 
Now this is not because I'm hard-headed or something, although I, I am a bit. But because I still believe that in this case, supervenience is not an ethical phenomenon because it is just another label for other ethical phenomena that we already have and we have had for thousands of, of years. And, and then it becomes a redundant phenomenon. So the question uh, that, that I would want to address for the next two minutes in the, in my, in the end of my comments is the following. If Professor Finnis were to rewrite, or hypothetically, had he read this paper before he, wrote, he, he had written Natural Law and Natural Rights, should he be obliged to include a tenth requirement of practical reasonableness in Chapter 5? And this, this requirement being supervenience, of course. The answer to this question, for me at least, is a flat no. And for this, for this to be the answer, I would have to challenge that contention that supervenience as such is a distinct ethical phenomenon. And this is precisely what I believe. In a nutshell, supervenience as such is not a eth uh, distinct ethical phenomenon, but an equivalent or almost identical substantive position as moral impartiality or the prohibition of arbitrary preferences amongst persons or fairness or the golden rule, etc. As I would claim that if we use so-called Occam's razor, here understood only as a methodological principle recommending bias towards simplicity in theories, not, not, not taking a position on Occam's razor, then I would say that we should leave supervenience and just uh, stick with uh, what we already have. Because I duly believe that as understood by Professor Kramer, it's a redundant uh, ethical category. And to see this, one uh, can see the different, at different portions of his, of his excellent article, Professor Kramer notes what would happen if we didn't have supervenience as a substantive ethical requirement. And I will quote quickly some of the words. There will be fickleness, capriciousness, inequity. There will be ethical inconsistency, uh, no procedure uh, justice, uh, a failure to treat like cases alike, etc. Um, it would efface the distinction between principal decisions and arbitrary decisions. There would be arbitrariness, uh, unfairness, inequity, etc. This may look like a long list, but it's basically uh, what Professor Kramer uh, argues is that there would be arbitrariness and unfairness in, in ethical judgments. Now, I agree completely with, uh, with Professor Kramer in that no moral or ethical system can consider itself respectable or even consider itself a moral system if it permits unreasonable partiality between persons or unfairness or arbitrariness, etc. What, what I do not agree with is that this is due to the fact that supervenience is an independent or autonomous or distinct ethical requirement. As Kramer's words, clearly, uh, uh, clear words make it uh, even more clearly, we are fa facing the, the same phenomenon that Professor Finney is facing when he labels the prohibition uh, of arbitrary uh, preferences amongst persons, or moral impartiality, or fairness, or the golden rule, or whatever. Inasmuch as uh, an ethical system forbids, imparti uh, through impartiality or, or fairness, forbids ethical inconsistency, then there's, uh, I, I see no, no need to recur to, to supervenience. And this reinforces to my mind the argument that supervenience is an issue brought to the agenda of ethical inquiry by theories who had a, a, a clear purpose. 
of disproving moral realism. It is no surprise that it should also have come to be regarded as an important feature of moral discourse only in the second half of the 20th century. For if it were as important as, as it seems to be, then I wonder how could morality have survived for the previous millennia or two or three without the concept of supervenience? How could ethical inconsistency be outlawed, in other words, only in the late 20th century? Or could the simpler answer be that it need not, since the requirement had been stated already with different labels, I agree, for thousands of years in similar form? Or perhaps the answer is simpler. By debating the anti-realists who want to prove that realism is false, we fall into an unwanted debate, maybe. I think this is what leads to Professor Kramer once he proves that, that it's absurd to consider supervenience as a meta-ethical phenomenon, to try to find it a job to do. And, and if this is the case, I think that supervenience is going to do a job that is already done, so it's going to be overpaid, or else it's going to be unemployed, as I see it. In sum, I, I would, uh, to finish, and, and, and I'm sorry for, for speaking too much, if I have passed the time, I would have to repeat uh, my, my, my initial question at this section is, and give an answer. And the answer is this, where Professor Finn is rewriting chapter five of his indeed magisterial natural law and natural rights, I don't think it would be obliged to include a 10th requirement of practical reason, reasoning, I'm sorry, a requirement of supervenience. For he would be basically repeating and replicating his well-founded and well-pedigreed requirement of prohibition of non-arbitrary distinction amongst persons. As a basic rule of fairness, golden rule, etc. His moral theory will not allow arbitrariness, inconsistency, unfairness. And the moral world will not run the, the risk of being a moral world running wild. So long as supervenience is not proven by its proponents, I finish, to be a distinct and a distinguishable feature autonomous from other requirements of our moral discourse, I think it should not be considered as a phenom ethical phenomenon. Thank you very much. You're not going to pay, sorry. No. I, actually, I like to walk up and down. Okay, so, so Smith and Jones um, get together a couple weeks after this conference. Uh, they stop and chat. And Smith says, Matthew Kramer gave a very good talk at the conference, but Tullison gave a stinker. Now, just an aside, it's totally juvenile and immature, but I did get the briefest moment of pleasure when I was writing this paper at the thought that I would be the only person at this conference to use the word stinker. Um, and then both Professors Endicott and Bradley trumped me. <laughs> what can you do? Jones asks, how was Kramer's talk good? And Smith replies, it was clear, well-written, made interesting and important philosophical points, and it was well-argued. It was not boring, pretentious, or overly technical. Jones asks, how did Tullison's paper differ in these respects? Smith, it did not. It was clear, well-written, made interesting and important points, and it was well-argued, thank you. Nor was it boring, pretentious, or overly technical, but it was a stinker. Now, Smith, I think, is guilty of a logical contradiction, but Kramer apparently did not agree. But Smith's claim that Kramer, Kramer's paper was a good one follows from the claim that it possessed its several properties and lack various others, only in conjunction with the further premise. 
A paper possessed of these properties and lacking those is a good paper. And this premise, in conjunction with the claim that Tullison's paper possessed these properties and lacked those, implies that Tullison's paper was good. But Tullison's paper was not good, and this is a contradiction. Now, Kramer accepts that it would be a contradiction if Smith should say Kramer's paper was good and Kramer's paper was not good. But because Kramer's paper and Tullison's paper are two distinct individuals, each possessing some properties independently of the other, Kramer believes that Smith can judge Tullison's paper differently without logical contradiction. And of course, this is true so long as Smith refers to one of these properties with regard to which Tullison's and Kramer's papers differ and cites them as being relevant to the difference in evaluation. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit um, that refers to the later part of Kramer's paper on the subject of numerical difference, but I think you get the, the flavor of the contradiction, as it seems to me, from the following passage. Kramer says, in short, because some properties of any situation will have no justificatory bearing on P's moral assessment of it, P can harbor a moral attitude toward that situation and a contrary moral attitude toward a situation which she knows to be qualitatively identical. The latter attitude will not be grounded on anything that P herself would deem to be a morally relevant factor. It will have been elicited by some aspects of the second situation, such as sheer spatial and temporal locations, that are perceived by P as constituting no principled basis for moral decision-making. Now, Kramer believes that such a person is guilty of a moral failing, but I find this person to be speaking and acting unintelligibly. Now, here are two other possibilities. First, Smith simply refuses to give any reasons for his judgment that Kramer's paper is good. Second, Smith intends the reasons he gave not to be the minor premise of a syllogism containing a general claim, but to indicate the content of a one-off, entirely particularistic intuition of the constitutive good-making features of Kramer's talk. But in some other circumstance, a different set of one-off, entirely particularistic features might make a talk good, and the previous set make it bad. As regards the first possibility, I think Smith would be failing to use evaluative language, for evaluation is relative to a standard or a measure. Smith's unwillingness to acknowledge the standard would show that he was not really using evaluative language at all. But the notion of a standard also casts cast out on the radically particularistic option. If evaluative judgments are all one-off, entirely particularistic, unique, incapable of any generalization, then those judgments are not evaluative judgments, whatever else they may be. For an evaluative measure that applies in principle only to one instance seems, again, to me, unintelligible. Now, it might be objected that we do not typically operate in our judgments about the value of philosophy talks with closed, entirely determinate, entirely articulate sets of properties that distinguish good talks from bad talks. This seems right. Smith may have felt some dislike for Tullison's talk without being able to articulate the difference between Tullison and Kramer, without being able to identify what Kramer's paper had that Tullison's paper didn't. But the assumption that there is some such property that distinguishes the two talks seems necessary to me to acquit Smith of logical contradiction. Smith's claim about paper is an evaluative judgment. As such, it seems dependent upon a more generally formulable evaluative claim from which, with the conjunction of non-evaluative or relatively non-evaluative claims, uh, the particular judgment follows. And these claims seem to capture much of what Hare had to say about generalizability or universalizability. And I think in this one tiny respect, we should agree with Hare. Actually, there's probably a couple other respects too, but with regard to this one. Now, a similar structure obtains when we're dealing with moral judgments. Smith, looking at his watch, says, I'm obliged to meet Tullison, and Jones says, why? We should understand this request as an invitation to Smith to reflect upon and articulate the course he's taken as a practical reasoner, to reflect upon and articulate the workings of his practical reason. If so, then we should further expect such reflection and articulation to work by way of practical syllogisms similar to the evaluative syllogism 
discussed earlier. I promised my friend Tolleson that I would meet him to critique his paper. One could keep one's promises, especially to friends, etc. Of course, the principle about promises and the relevance of friendship might both be queried, and so Smith will, if he's practically reasonable and reasonably articulate, trace his justification for his claim back through something like the structure identified by John Finnis at the beginning of Natural Law and Natural Rights. Basic goods of friendship and truth will play a role, as will the intermediate modes of responsibility, referring to the common good, commitments, and impartiality, and Smith might also have something to say about the coordinating value of promises. Now, it's worthwhile to make here some brief points about the relationships that obtain between judgments at various points in the course of Smith's practical reasoning. Smith's final judgment that he should do such and such is a singular prescription. If the claims earlier in this paper are correct, however, then to the extent that Smith is willing to give any reasons at all for that, evalu that singular judgment, he's thereby committed to some universal norm that justifi justifies that immediate judgment. Such norms, however, may have two characteristics that should not be confused with a lack of universality. First, they are likely to be, in many cases, extremely narrow in scope. For the principles that justify an agent's actions in a variety of cases are principles that take note of particular commitments made by the agent and particular circumstances the agent finds himself in. Second, these principles, as expressed by most agents, are not likely on their surface to conform to the requirement that universal principles contain no proper names or individual constants. Many agents subscribe to the norm that Jesus Christ is to be obeyed in all things and loved with all one's heart, which is actually a, a little closer to the, the example that Mackey gives. What is required in order for such a norm to be intelligible as a principle is that agents be committed, at least implicitly, to reasons that may be formulated without reference to individuals. Agents must implicitly hold, for example, that if a creator God became incarnate, this would generate obligations to love and obey that incarnate deity. And what this suggests is that at the utmost justificatory reaches of practical reasoning, the ultimate reasons for actions must themselves contain no references to individuals. Now let me express these two points by saying that as practical reason, the practical reasoning gradually becomes both more personal and less general in character as it descends to singular prescriptions. It seems possible that there's confusion here when we meet characters in Kramer's paper like the lonely ascetic who believes that his asceticism is imperative only for himself but not to any others identical to him in all respects. As described, the ascetic seems once again to me to be involved in self-contradiction. But he can easily be extricated if he has made, as others have not, a moral commitment to asceticism. This commitment might not register in an objective third personal list of the circumstances in which the ascetic finds himself. Uh, and as his commitment, its consequences are not generalizable to others, however similar, unless they have made similar commitments. Moreover, he need not think that the commitment itself was morally obligatory for him when he made it, but rather was one of a set of morally acceptable options, all of which practiced prom pr promised practical benefit. But because there's a path from the basic goods and the modes of responsibility to the permissibility of making the commitment, and thence to the obligatoriness of doing what follows from the commitment and avoiding what's inconsistent with it, the ascetic's particular conclusions even when expressed as principles, do not violate the logic of morals at all. Those conclusions would apply to all others in qualitatively identical circumstances when we take into account things like commitments. Now, in conclusion, um, but not a two-sentence conclusion, I'm going to say a little bit. I want to draw some connections between these points and some claims of natural law and natural rights. Okay. So first, I've indicated that an agent thinking practically about what she ought to do quite quickly and reasonably becomes extricated in proper names, including her own, insofar as she identifies her commitments and the reasonable objects of those commitments. At the same time, I've suggested that the most abstract principles of practical reason, the principles identifying knowledge, life, friendship, and so on as basic goods to be pursued, 
are properly framed without reference to proper names. And this is a point that I think Professor Finnis has made repeatedly. But it can be tempting to the moral philosopher to extend the impersonality and generality of the upper reaches of practical reason and morality to encompass all but the most singular judgments concerning what a particular agent ought to do. And even these judgments might be made from a detached standpoint, and this is sort of riding on some language of Thomas Nagel, uh, a detached standpoint from which it's of little consequence whether CT is me. And from this standpoint of radical detachment, Sidgwick's point of view of the universe, each agent is to count as one for one and only one. And from this standpoint, some sort of utilitarianism seems to loom. Now, Finnis's account of the nature of justice and natural law and natural rights marks one important turning point in the intellectual battle against this standpoint. <coughs> of the radically impersonal principle, Finnis writes that, quote, it is not reasonable as a principle of practical deliberations for anyone. Of everyone, it is true that because of his promises and or parenthood and or his debts of gratitude and or his, re and or his relations of interdependence with or assumption of authority in relation to ascertained persons and communities, he cannot reasonably give equal weight or equal concern to the interests of every person anywhere whose interests he could ascertain and affect. So universalizability then, this is me, is not the same thing as impersonality and generality. Neither, however, and this is my second point, is it the same as the normative demand for impartiality. For if we consider Smith and Jones again, it seems possible to hold two things. First, in the dialogue that I described, Smith is formally inconsistent. But second, it's entirely possible for Smith to judge Tollefson's paper differently in a way that does indicate a moral but not a logical error. For Smith's judgment can be shaped in unreasonable ways by emotional factors not relevant to the strict judgment of philosophic worth. What I originally wrote was, for example, attraction to Kramer's English accent. Um, but what can you do? And then I wrote hostility to Tullison's relative youth, but he doesn't look any older than me. Uh, or similarity between what Kramer believed and Smith already thought. The beard. It must be the beard. It's got to be the beard. There's also, there's, there's, there's baldophobia out there. Some of us have suffered. Now, similar errors can be multiplied across the spectrum of practical reasoning, deliberation, and choice. Yet such errors are rarely, it seems to me, if ever, of the form described by Kramer. Moral agents do not put their reasonable forms of practical reasoning alongside their unreasonable arbitrariness or bias in a transparent way, baldly asserting that what applies to them, it's a joke, uh, applies to no one else. Rather, having allowed emotions to shape the attractiveness of some option in some unreasonable way, they tailor their judgments so as to rationalize their choices. So Smith is likely, if his judgment of Tullison's paper is the result of bias or hostility, to find some property in light of which Tullison's and Kramer's paper differ and focus upon that as providing justification for the difference in assessment. Or he's apt to deny that Tullison's paper really had the qualities of a good paper, twisting the facts to make it seem as if his judgment was fair and measured. Is universalizability normatively operative here as a constraint on Smith that will enable him to be impartial in his judgments? Contrary to some suggestions, I take it, of Professor Finnis, I don't, I don't think so. If universalizability in principle is a necessary condition for the straightforward intelligibility of an evaluative and hence moral judgment, then it seems wrong to think that the same principle is a substantive moral precept. Moreover, the rationalizations provided by self-interested and biased wrongdoers are always, I think, formulable and very often formulated in universalized judgments. And finally, it's not clear, and paper, Kramer's paper ultimately left me unconvinced, that there's any substantive moral error that's eliminated by bare universalizability when you can just retail your principles and become the same self-serving francophile or egoist that you were before. 
Now, more promising as a genuine normative constraint is the formulation identified by Finnis in Natural Law and Natural Rights is identical to the principle of universalizability, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In difficult moral questions, Griset, while holding that this norm is the same as the principle of universalizability, argues that it offers a different sort of advice to practical reasoners. Quote, compared with the universalizability principle, the golden rule offers one great advantage. It suggests a way of applying the principle, put yourself in another's place. The driver in a hurry, reluctant to make way for others, is instructed by the golden rule to ask, what would I want other drivers to do if I was trying to merge into the traffic stream? Even habits and structures of injustice can be criticized in this way, end quote. The, this extension of one's sympathies to the needs and rights of others, however, is simply not demanded by the logical principle of universalizability. So that principle should not be thought identical to the principle of impartiality, especially as formulated in the golden rule, just as it's not identical with the need for generality and impersonality. Still, and this is my final brief point, universalizability, accompanied by impersonality and generality, can play a role in helping to achieve impartiality and fairness. It plays this role insofar as general and impersonal universal prescriptions are taken to be especially apt in the formulation of law. Earlier I suggested that the attempt to bring the impersonality and generality of universal prescriptions with no individual constants to bear on moral thinking in a pervasive way was characteristic of utilitarianism, but within limits that attempt does seem reasonably made in law, which is no respecter of persons. And Professor Finnis has recently suggested that the radical equality of all human persons raises a crucial question. What, in the face of this equality, can justify human authority, particularly insofar as that authority is to wield the sword in the balance? And I think, I'm ripe for correction, that Professor Finnis's answer relies on two considerations one of which has been given more play in this conference than the other. The first is the manifest need for authority if social life is to be more than a chaotic mess, inadequate to the pursuit of goods and community and for the restoration of justice when a reasonable social order is, is ruptured. The second is the way in which the law, as impersonal, general, and in a certain sense self-administrating, may be recognized as a means of maintaining and exercising coercive and judging authority that does not privilege the ruler above the ruled, but rather really is a rule of law and not men. Impersonality and generality, then, are legitimate aspirations of the law in a way that they're not in morality. But neither impersonality and generality on the one hand, nor impartiality on the other, should be confused with the merely logical demand for universalizability. Professor Kramer, a brief uh, response, and then we'll open up. Okay, thank you. Um, as I've said, I didn't see these comments beforehand, so I'm going to reply only very briefly, also because we're somewhat over time. Um, just a few points in response to Roberto's remarks. Um, first of all, when I talked about the point of ethics as involving the structuring of interaction among human beings, I wasn't actually expressing my own view there. I was um, attributing that view to Aaron Mackey. So um, I think that is certainly part of the um, fundamental point or purpose or set of purposes of morality, but I'm not expressing my own view there, and I don't, I'm not a utilitarian. Um, as far as everything within ethics or outside, um, I, I certainly accept um, John's objections to Law's Empire and Dworkin's heavy use of language that sounds subjectivist there, the notion of imposing a point of purpose, and all. I, I fully accept his objections to that. But I think in Dworkin's subsequent writings, particularly his 1996 article in Philosophy and Public Affairs, um, he makes clear that he's a moral realist. He's not a moral realist in the metaphysical sense, perhaps. It's not that he's um, d 
denying moral realism in the metaphysical sense. It's just that he's dodging it altogether. Um, but he's a moral realist in the same sense that I am. That is, that he takes to be basic moral principles to be timelessly true, to be true independently of what anyone believes or thinks, um, and so forth and so on, and to partake of the other properties which I attribute to moral requirements in this paper of one juncture, which I didn't discuss at all here. Um, so I certainly classify myself as a moral realist. Um, I also accept that there are, and indeed I state as much as in regard to logical issues, there are certainly logical issues that bear on moral claims, um, and logical requirements are certainly applicable to moral discourse. Similarly, there are certainly ontological issues that um, can't will influence the ways in which certain moral determinations um, work out. But, uh, but um, And all of that I'm perfectly happy to accept. Um, what I deny is that um, the sorts of issues that are normally classified as meta-ethical are, um, are themselves anything other than highly abstract ethical claims. So insofar as, for example, these ontologic, some of these ontological claims would be, be classified in that manner, I would just regard them as highly abstract ethical issues. Um, and, and so I'm not denying that ontological argumentation and certainly logical considerations play a role here. I'm just denying that they play any role that is not also substantively ethical. Um, yeah, as far, I, I didn't discuss my rejoinders to Simon Blackburn at all, so I'll simply say this much, and I, so I don't want to go into that because I'd have to um, recount what I've said. But um, I find Simon's position very difficult because he's not only an expressivist or projectivist, but also a quasi-realist, and he takes those two positions to be integrally connected. My own view is that quasi-realism ent entirely... Um, envelops uh, expressivism and just reduces it to an etiological account of moral sentiments, to which I have no particular objection if it's presented as such. Um, but I think his philosophical position is actually quasi-realist, in which case he's committed to a whole array of claims about moral facts, moral truth, and so forth. Um, and he himself insists as much and denies that there is room for meta-ethical objections to such things. So, um, so I've, I've found Simon's position very difficult to bring together. Um, and therefore, I would actually prefer to see him as being aligned with me and indeed with Dworkin as a moral realist. And we can just drop, drop the quasi, because I think the quasi suggests that there are um, issues in contention here which aren't actually in contention. I'm sorry if that's opaque to some people who aren't familiar with these debates, but I don't have time to say more on that point. Um, as far as Chris's um, remarks, um, I have only a couple of points to make. Um, I'm certainly not suggesting that uh, this is a narrow point, but I just want to make. I'm certainly not suggesting that an evaluative judgment would be applicable, or some type of evaluative judgment would be applicable only to one particular. I'm su suggesting that an evaluative judgment of some type, such as that something's good, would be applicable to a wide range of particulars. It's simply that the, it would be applicable to them on, on arbitrary grounds, that is, in, um, in capricious ways. Um, so I accept that some property ascribable only to one particular 
would, would not then be intelligible as an evaluative property. But that's, that's not what I'm maintaining. Um, and then, yeah, whether a uh, preparedness, a willingness to offer justificatory reasons in support of um, one's stance on some matter, whether that entails a commitment to universal principles. Well, I think that just displaces the question of universality versus radical particularity onto the nature of moral reasons as opposed to the nature of moral principles. And once again, I fully accept, I'm not disputing at all with Chris or anyone else, that the only sound moral reasons are universalized re moral reasons. The only sound moral principles are universal moral principles. So I'm not disputing that at all. The question is whether someone who offers a particularistic reason or particularistic principle is making a logical error. And that's what I'm contesting. I think that it's a substantive moral error. A fundamental substantive moral error, which I'm perfectly happy to describe as a conceptual error. If by conceptual we simply mean um, something that uh, the erroneousness of which is knowable a priori, but which is the um, which is nonetheless synthetic rather than analytic. So I I, um, I I don't deny at all that we might describe this as a conceptual error, so long as conceptual is not understood to mean logical. Okay, um, floor is open. Yes, uh, Gideon Rosen. Could I just say, and Roberto may want to reply as well, but um, a couple of things. I didn't deal with Roberto's point about the possible redundancy of supervenience. Um, I'll just say briefly that maybe that's correct. That is, maybe it's just a summation of other constraints on arbitrariness. Um, that's something I'm not going to address here. There is one juncture in the paper which I suggest that that might be the case. Um, as, as far as um, I, I agree that there's nothing in inherently anti-realist anti about it. Uh, Schaefer Landau, who's a full-blown moral realist, is seeking to vindicate the constraint of supervenience. I'm seeking to vindicate it. I regard myself as a moral realist. Um, but I, 
nonetheless maintain that it is a fundamental ethical requirement, and it may be that everyone has accepted it, but Hare certainly took himself to be arguing against people whom he regarded as not accepting um, the constraint of supervenience. He called them existentialists, but he certainly felt that there were people against whom he was arguing. Um, to some degree, Mackey actually um, does not accept the constraint of supervenience. He does accept it to a large extent, but when it comes to the ascetic, um, whom we might regard as an existentialist of sorts, I suppose, um, Mackey actually thinks that that is a moral claim and a correct moral claim, that it, or at least a, uh, a potentially correct moral claim, because he believes that it is consistent with the purpose of morality as he conceives of it. His conception of the purpose of morality is by no means identical to Hare's, and um, though they're both broadly utilitarian or consequentialist. And so Mackey himself doesn't fully accept the constraint of supervenience, though he does to a large extent. Good. Any undergraduate or graduate students have questions or want to make comments? Anyone? The floor is completely open. No, well, uh, if not, I'll just close the panel by uh, thanking Professor Kramer and his commentators and also noting that uh, I had a moment's concern when he introduced, uh, as an example, Francophilia. Uh, two or three years ago, we had a visiting uh, professor here at Princeton in international relations, a distinguished man in the field named uh, Professor Angelo Cadavilla. And he was teaching a course for us in international affairs. And as it happens, Professor uh, Cadavilla is a great lover of French wine, French food, very knowledgeable about French history, and he would pepper his points in class with examples drawn from French culture and history and even declared himself to be a Francophile. Well, midway through the semester, he was at a uh, cocktail party or reception and uh, introduced himself to one of our uh, graduate students, uh, put his hand out, said uh, the graduate student grasped his hand, and as he said, I'm Angelo Cadavilla, the graduate student withdrew his hand. He said, you're Cotavilla. Yes. I understand that you uh, declared yourself in class to be a Francophile. And he said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I did. And the graduate student said, well, I think Franco was a horrible tyrant. <laughs> I think that, Gideon, is that a category error? <laughs> we reassemble at uh, three for uh, Joseph uh, Boyle's paper on incommensurable options, uh, self-reference, and free choice. Thank you, Professor Kramer. I'll send you a copy. Great, that would be a